passed out if you want one, and if you don't get one, just raise your hand, and the guys will be sure to get it to you. But go ahead and um, turn your Bible to the book of Joel. That's where we'll be tonight. Um, this quarter on Wednesday nights, we are studying in the uh, the Minor Prophets, and so tonight we'll be doing the book of Joel. We've had an introductory lesson. We've had the book of Obadiah, and so tonight we'll study from the book of Joel, and um Maybe you've heard this already. It's already been said. We probably can just say it again briefly. Minor prophets doesn't mean lesser importance. Some people have said one way to describe them is the not so minor prophets. Augustine called them the book of the 12. They're called the minor prophets mainly because of their size has nothing to do with what you find within them. When you read the prophets, they're normally doing several things at a time. They're either one speaking to God's people, whether Israel or Judah, rebuking them for what they've done and trying to get them to repent. Number two, talking to the nations and telling them, hey, you guys have done things to God's people and you'll be punished as a result of that. And then they also point forward to the messianic age and the things that God's going to do in the future. And so tonight we come to the book of Joel, which is just three chapters, 73 verses in our Bible. And um, we're going to look at it from this vantage point tonight. You have the handout there in front of you. We're going to look at the introduction and background information do a flyover. I wouldn't call it an exegesis, but just a flyover of what is contained in each chapter and talk about some of the contents in the book. And then we'll talk about some of the major themes that appear in the book. And then we'll talk about how the New Testament uses the book of Joel. And if we have enough time, we'll talk about seeing Jesus in the book of Joel and we'll make time for that. All right. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Joel chapter one and let's go ahead and get started with the intro and background. Does everybody have a handout that wants one? Roger doesn't have one. Sure, I stand. I'm going to do my best to stay on track with the PowerPoint up there, but y'all just keep me honest as best you can. So let's start. Joel chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So who wrote the book? His name is Joel. It means in Hebrew, Yahweh is God. That's what we find in the first chapter and in the first verse. There are several people named Joel throughout the Old Testament or throughout the Bible, 12 to be exact. We don't have any reason to connect this Joel with any of those other Joels. He's a prophet in his own right and a different man from the other Joels that you're going to read about in the Bible. What do we know about him from the first verse? His dad's name was what? Pethuel. I just want to see how many different ways we could pronounce that, but that's all right. Yeah. (laughs) Pethuel, however you want to do that. Yeah, that's all we know about him. So we know him. He was a prophet. The word of the Lord came to him. His dad's name was Pethuel or Pethuel and That's it. Why do you think God doesn't, you know, commentators try to figure out these different prophets names and what they mean and all that's important. And it can give you sometimes a window into who they were, some information about their lives. But it's interesting that we don't know anything about Joel outside of what's contained in this first verse. Why do you think God didn't tell us a lot about Joel? What do you think that suggests to us? I mean, if God gives us some background Jonah, Jonah is mentioned in Second Kings 14. And so you've got some background on him. Some of the other prophets like Amos, you know what he did for a living based on Amos chapter seven and some other things, but not with Joel. So what does that suggest to us as we read the book? We just have his name, his dad's name. And so what do we learn from that message? It doesn't mean anything or we don't need to know it. So what we're going to find in Joel is God's going to rebuke his people and call them to account for the way that they've been behaving. And the focus of this book 
is not so much on the prophet as much as it is on the message that he proclaims. And God's message to him is get this message out to my people and everything else is in the background, including the prophet's origin, who he is and all of those sorts of things. When did Joel write? This is sometimes a point of contention. If you use a study Bible or commentary, you're going to find one of two dates. People are either going to say Joel wrote early on 830 B.C. or after that in the 500s post-Babylonian captivity. Those would be the two dates that you typically find. Let's just do a brief exercise. I don't have a lot of time. Kevin stole about 15 minutes from me, but um, no, he didn't. But let's go to Isaiah chapter one. I just want to show you how the prophets are normally set up that help you figure out when they were written. Isaiah chapter one and verse one. We'll just do two of these for an example. Isaiah chapter one and verse one says this. <clears throat> Hold your hand in Joel so you don't have to find it again. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. OK, so when it starts that way, it's telling you not only that Isaiah was a prophet, but the time in which he did his prophetic work. There are several reasons for that. One is to say, study those kings and you'll know what was going on in Isaiah's lifetime and the things he had to face. But a second help is just go back to first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles and find out what was happening in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Let's do one more. Go to Jeremiah chapter one. Jeremiah chapter one and verse one. And you're going to find a similar thing. Jeremiah one. And really, we'll just jump down to verse three. The introduction. These are the words of Jeremiah. But Jeremiah one and verse three. It came also in the days of, I'm in verse 2, Josiah, the son of Ammon. He was the king in Judah in the 13th year of his reign. In the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. And most of the prophets read that way. You don't get out of the first three verses until you find out who was the king, how long they prophesied, and then you can situate them in a certain time frame. The problem with Joel, of course, is you don't have any of that information. And so these two dates emerge and you'll find arguments for both sides. For the purposes of our class, we're going with the 830 B.C. date, which I think is right. And it's at the beginning he, that would put him at the front of the line with many of the prophets. It's the date that we chose. I don't think whichever date you choose makes any big difference in how you interpret the book. But it's just some information for you to have. All right. Who's his audience? Joel is preaching to both groups. He's preaching to the southern kingdom of Judah based on some verses in chapter two, verse one, verse 15 and verse 23. But he also mentions Israel. So you remember after Solomon kingdom divides, there's the northern kingdom of Israel. Ten tribes go there to the north, two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah and two tribes go there. Joel's just preaching to Israel collectively. So he's not going to single out any one group or any one tribe. Joel's message is for everybody. And we'll see that as we get into the meat of what he says. And then here are the major sections of the book. So here's how Joel divides up the book. In chapter one, verse one, all the way to chapter two and verse 11, Joel basically says punishment is coming. And he's going to talk primarily about a locust plague that's coming on God's people because of their sins and some things that they've done wrong. When you get to chapter two and about verse 12, Joel's going to start saying some things about if you guys repent, God will restore you and give you a second chance. It's not all doom and gloom. If you straighten up your act. Now, there is a call to repentance in chapter one. But chapter two, verse 12 through 27, it's really strong. He's begging them to repent and even showing them some of the blessings that would be theirs. Chapter two and verse 25, if they come back and then the book ends in chapter two, verse 28, all the way to the end in chapter three and verse 21 with God saying through Joel, hey, if you repent, I'll give you the physical stuff back that the locusts destroyed. 
But there are some amazing blessings beyond the physical that are going to come afterwards in the last days at a different time. That's the basic outline and framework of the book. And that's what we'll look at tonight. Now, one more thing before we get into the meat of the book and then to our practical application. Why did he write this book and what was going on? Typically, prophets talk about a specific sin that people were doing. So maybe idolatry. Or maybe like injustice, robbing the poor. Amos will say when we talk about him that they steal from the poor and they rob the needy for a pair of shoes and they take the dust off a person's forehead. And they'll be specific about the kind of violations that people were engaged in. Joel doesn't really zero in on any specific sin of Israel. He just speaks in general about them violating the covenant, things that God had told them to do and not to do. And they've done some of that. And now in Joel, he's going to rebuke them and tell them how to straighten out their act. All right. Let's go ahead and begin with basically the overview of the book, and we'll take it in three sections. You don't have to write all of this down. This is just to give you the contents of what's taking place. Joel chapter one and verse one and verse one down through verse two. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So he's about to go into the first part of this about the punishment that's coming, the locusts and the plagues. And Joel starts out by telling us who he is. And then he says who he's writing this message to. Look down at verse two and tell me who is Joel writing to? Who is the audience for this message? Who is he aiming at? Somebody says the elders. Anybody else? All the inhabitants of the land. What does that tell us? All the inhabitants of the land. Who is this for? Everybody. And Joel's not done telling them it's for everybody. Look at chapter one and verse five. Who does he say? Awake you. Who? Who is that? Drunkards. Okay. Well, and weep. Somebody probably needs to preach to them. Look at verse eight. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. If you go down to verse 11, chapter one, verse 11, be ashamed. Who? Who is that now? Farmers, tillers of the soil. Chapter one and verse 13. Who is he talking to? Priests and those that minister at the altar. And so Joel's saying, hey, this is for everybody. The entire nation is under condemnation because of the way that they behave and everybody needs to repent. Joel's rebuking the entire nation. Sometimes the prophets call out the leaders. They typically start there. Joel does do that. He starts with the elders. But everybody in Israel is guilty of transgression. So what's God going to do? This is what Joel's probably most famous for. There's the destruction coming through the locust plagues. Now, when you read about the locusts, there are two ideas. Are these physical locusts that are going to come and devour their land? Is this going to be an agricultural punishment from God? Or number two, is this a locust metaphor for an army that's coming? And you might say, well, that doesn't make any sense. The reason why some people say that is because throughout the Bible, locusts are sometimes described or used metaphorically to talk about a physical army. So you think Judges 6 and verse 5, Judges 7 and verse 12, Jeremiah says it about Babylon in Jeremiah 46 and verse 23. Sometimes God says this army is going to come and destroy you and they're going to eat you alive like locusts. But in the book of Joel, these are physical locusts. Now, what do we know about locusts? Somebody tell me something about locusts that we know. They... They swarm. They Brittany, what'd you say? They destroy crops. What else? I thought y'all were going to help me with that, but okay. I'd adopt them, huh? Yeah, they're not picky about what they eat. They just you said what, Nat? Hide underground for a 
they hide underground. This is what the National Geographic talks about. This is some of the stuff they say on their website. They have some interesting information. There have been several famous locust plagues, one in 1915, another in 1954, and another in 1988. And so they say the desert locust is notorious and found in Africa, the Middle East, and in Asia. They inhabit some 60 countries and cover one-fifth of the Earth's land surface. They threaten the livelihood of one-tenth of the world's humans. A swarm can be 460 square miles in size and pack between 40 to 80 million locusts into a half square mile. Each locust can eat its weight and plants every day, so a swarm... Um, Rita was talking about a swarm. They can eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. Now, let's read Joel chapter one. I'm in verse four and he's talking about four different types of locusts. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust is eaten. What the hopping locust is left, the destroying locust is eaten. And then he says, awake, drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine. It is cut off from your mouth, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful, beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and its fangs have the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine, splintered my tree, stripped off the bark, thrown it down. Their branches are made white. And this will go through chapter 1 and verse 17. And he speaks of these locusts. He'll do it more in chapter 2 as well as a mighty army coming to destroy everything in their path. Now, what do we know about locusts from the Bible? Where do we first encounter locusts as a punishment on a group of people in the Bible? Egypt. Plague number eight. Exodus chapter 10. It's funny what Hosea is trying to say to God's people is this. You've become so misbehaved that the punishment that was once your enemies has now become yours. You remember God sent the locusts on the Egyptians because of their rebellion and wickedness, but now you've broken the covenant and God promised them this. You can write these references down, but in Deuteronomy 28, 38 through 42, Leviticus 26 and verse 20, and Leviticus 26 and verse 26, God says, if you ever break the covenant with me, you and I will be on such bad terms that what was Egypt's will be yours and locusts will devour everything within your path. And that day's come and Joel is saying, now you're under condemnation because you didn't walk uprightly and you're receiving the punishment that was your that was your enemies in times past. All right. That's down through verse number verse seven. And then Joel calls them to repent. Can we get somebody to read Joel one, eight through twelve? Joel one, eight through twelve. So the locusts are coming. That's Joel one, four through seven. They're going to destroy everything in their path. And then there's this brief call to repentance in verses eight through twelve. All right. So you see the call to repentance in verse eight, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth. But then what does Joel try to use to get the people to come to their senses? What is he saying to them? Why should they repent? Roger, just look around. Your, your whole civilization is torn up by these locusts because you won't submit and do the will of God. Just straighten things out with God and make things right. There's a call to the leaders in verse 13 down through verse 14 to repent. And then verse 15. He says in chapter one, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the almighty, it comes. All right. And so throughout Joel, the day of the Lord is important. And, you know, Old Testament Israel, they thought the day of the Lord was for other people, that the day of the Lord meant God was going to punish all of their enemies. But Joel says the day of the Lord's coming and it's coming for you because you've been rebellious and disobedient. He mentions that things are terrible in verse one, chapter one, excuse me, verse 16 down through verse 18. 
And then Joel himself begs for relief from God in verse 19 and 20 of chapter one. Notice this chapter one, verse 19 to you, O Lord, I call for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And so Joel is saying, God, have mercy on us. Relent from the disaster and pull back. And chapter two, verse one through 17, further some of the same talk about destruction. He talks more about him in chapter two, one through 17, being a mighty army that are coming to destroy his people. All right. We'll go through these next two sections quickly so we can get to the application portion. But the second section of Joel is about repentance. Look at Joel chapter two and notice verse 12 and 13. This is after he's again described the locust is coming like an army. I'm going to read Joel two, twelve and 13. Yet now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over the disaster. Okay, so God in this whole section that we're looking at, verse 12 down through verse 27, is calling on the people to repent. But here's the question in verse 12. How does he tell them to do that? Yet now return, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with what? All your heart. Why specify that? Why not just say, hey, return to me and repent? Sometimes the Bible says that. Why does he say here, return to me with all your heart? What's that all about? Yeah, so it's not superficial. Yeah, in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about godly sorrow that leads to repentance that doesn't need to be regretted. And there's a temptation to turn to God, but not do it fully. To turn just enough period of the judges to get him to relent from the disaster, to pull back his hand from punishment, but not be sincere. And so he says, I want you to turn to me fully and completely. Look at verse 14. What will happen or what might happen if they actually do this fully? If they don't pull back, if they just fully say, "Okay, we're done living our own way and we want to repent. What does Joel say might be their lot if they truly repent? The Lord might leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And so God's saying, hey, if you repent, I'll bless you. How did Joel know that was possible? That if people repented, God might relent from the disaster. Where did he get an idea like that from? From God, Brittany. Where where would he get it from God? That if you change, if you're doing wrong and you repent, God says, "Okay, I won't punish you fully like you deserve. I'll I'll withdraw. I'll ease up on the punishment. He got it from God. But from where exactly? God's history with his people. Yes. That's right. We've seen it in history and God. We've seen it in practice with other people. And it's how God describes himself. Go to Exodus 34 and notice. And this is going to come up a lot in the minor prophets. The reason why it's the most quoted verse in the Old Testament, but it was the prophet's favorite verse to quote. And for good reason, it's God's description about himself. So hold your hand in Joel. You need to be able to see two verses at a time. Joel and Exodus 34 in Exodus 34. This is where Moses says, God, show me your glory. Show me who you are. God says, I can't do that. You won't live if I do that. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and my glory will pass before you. You'll see my backside. But notice Exodus 34, six and seven. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Doing what? 
Forgiven iniquity, transgression, and sin, he will not clear the guilty. He visits the iniquity of the father on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now go back to Joel chapter 2 and notice Joel 2 and verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is what? What does Joel say? Joel just starts quoting Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He quotes God's self-revelation. Jonah's going to do the same thing. All of the prophets. Micah does it in Micah 7. It's their favorite verse. When they're trying to get people to come back to God, they reintroduce them to God and say, hey, God's who he's always been. You've broken the covenant. God's never changed. I promise you, if you repent, he'll leave a blessing. That's why Joel can speak authoritatively on top of the proof with the northern kingdom and all of these other groups who didn't get the full punishment that they deserve. Joel saying, if you just turn around, God will relent from the disaster that you deserve. In chapter two, verse 15 down through 17, he says, if you don't, you'll be embarrassed by the nations. And that's a pretty big deal for them. They never want to be put to shame before other nations. He says in verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion and consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation and assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and even the bride her chamber between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? For Old Testament Israel to be punished by God and banished would be an embarrassment. And it's the last thing they wanted for the nations to say. You've been embarrassed because you didn't do God's will. And so Joel, again, is using this as an opportunity to call them to repent. And then, of course, he says, God will restore what's lost if you repent. Verses 18 down through 27. Verse 25 is really one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, but especially in the book of Joel. Notice what he says in verse 25. And we'll talk more about this when we look at the main themes in the book. But Joel 2, 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust is eaten, the hopper, the destroyer and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. When God says, I'm going to restore, I'm going to give you a second chance. If you repent, I'll give you all the stuff back that you lost. What does this teach us about God? It's a big deal. This is a fundamental lesson about God. By the way, who sent the locusts to Israel to begin with? God. Why does God have to tell them that? So they don't think this is chance, fate or a national, a natural phenomena. God sent the locusts. But when God says, hey, I destroyed everything in his path, I killed everything in your crops and all of that. But if you repent, I'll give it all back. What does it teach you about God and me about God? He's in control. But what about the restoration? He's merciful. He's forgiving. God never. We got to get this about God. God never punishes to ruin. He never does. Every time God spanks somebody, spiritually speaking, it's with the hopes that it would wake them up to their spiritual senses. There's only going to be one final where you can't come back from that. And that's Hebrews 9:27. After death comes the judgment. Every punishment from God in our lives is designed not to wreck and ruin us but to help us to realize how far we've fallen and wake us up to our spiritual senses. And the promise of Joel 2.25 is just true from cover to cover in the Bible. I'll restore what the locusts have eaten. I'll give you back the years you lost in unfaithfulness to me. Just turn back and repent. He never punishes to just obliterate and ruin. That's not his objective. His objective is to bring people back. That's with Israel, with foreign nations in the Old Testament, with everybody. That's his goal. 
Yeah, he will. We'll talk more about the heart in a minute. Let's just finish this last section and then we're going to get to New Testament application, major themes in the book. But the glorious days ahead. This is the last section in the book. God's going to pour out his spirit and save. We'll talk more about that when the time comes. But go to Joel 2:28, and let's just notice something that's said there that I think will at least help us to read the prophets. Sometimes you read the Old Testament prophets and you might have this question. How do I figure out? When an Old Testament prophet is saying this is going to happen here or this is going to happen in the future, New Testament times. How do I know that for sure? Sometimes it seems like Joel chapter two at the end and into chapter three. Some commentators think, oh, Jesus is going to come back, establish a kingdom in Israel. And how can we be sure that he's talking about new covenant times? Joel's easy because Peter quotes it in Acts chapter two. But here is another thing. When you read the prophets, if you read this phrase in that day. Or in these days to come, 99 percent of the time is talking about the new covenant age. Look at Joel chapter three and notice verse one. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. And then he talks about gathering all nations. Chapter three and verse 18. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. You read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and they start saying these glorious things are going to come to Israel in the future. When you read in that day, your mind should be thinking new covenant promises in Jesus. There may be some of it that applies to the immediate context of those people. But in that day or afterwards or in those days, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time is talking about things that are going to happen in the messianic era when Jesus establishes the church. It's just the key phrase in that day. It couldn't be that 24 hour period It's saying in that messianic era, the last dispensation of time, God's going to do great things for his people through the Messiah that's to come. And anyway, we'll just speed through this last part, the destruction of God's enemies and the exaltation of his people. That's going to come as well. So that's the book of Joel. Punishments coming. Locusts are going to destroy everything. That's chapter one. If you repent, a large part of chapter two, what will God do if you repent? He will re what? Restore. And then great things are coming in your future in the messianic age in Jesus. So what are some of the major themes that we find in the book of Joel? What are some of the major ideas that Joel captures for us? Number one, the day of the Lord. Joel chapter one and verse 15 mentions the day of the Lord, but it occurs five times in the book. Look at Joel chapter one and verse 15. We'll just read these off. You might underline these or mark these. Alas, for the day of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the almighty, it comes. Some people say this is the whole point of the book. And I think that's probably right. The day of the Lord as far as punishment. Look at chapter two and verse one. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble for the what is coming near. The day of the Lord. Chapter two, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for what is great. The day of the Lord. It's in chapter two, verse thirty one. And then in chapter three, verse 14, the day of the Lord says to you and to me that God takes sin seriously. Again, Israel thought the day of the Lord was for the nations, for somebody else. And God shows up and he says, no, it's for you. Much like the book of Revelation that says God will remove the candlestick from his people. The day of the Lord reminded Israel that just because they were in a covenant relationship with God did not mean that they were off limits from his punishment if they didn't get their act together. Question the final day of the Lord that's coming. Is it a day of fear or a day of excitement for us? Which one is it? Robert said it depends on your situation. That's right. You see, Israel would sit there and they would say, we can't wait for the day of the Lord. And the prophets would say, "Um, yes, you can. 
You violated the will of the Lord. You really don't. It's like a kid that's been in trouble. The principal called home and mom shows up outside. He's like, oh, mommy's home. It's not a good day. You really don't want to go outside and meet mom. You're in trouble. That's the day of the Lord for Israel. They think it's going to be this great and glorious day of salvation. And it's a day of ruin and punishment for them. And it's a major theme in Joel. Number two, apocalyptic language. Look at Joel chapter two and verse 10. I wish we had more time to develop this, but I just want to show you this. It'll help you with the prophets, revelation, other challenging literature. The earthquakes before them, chapter two, verse 10. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are dark. The stars are withdrawn from their shining. Chapter two, verse 30. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Chapter three and verse 16 talks about the heavens quaking and the earth quaking. When you read in the prophets about sun and stars falling and moon to blood, it's not literally going to happen. It's always a way of God saying something, a nation, an empire or a covenant that you think is so stable that it's like the stars in the sky or the sun that'll never be moved. It's on its way down. You can just mark it down. God saying I'm about to do something completely different. So when you read it in Matthew 24 or in Revelation chapter six, it's not the end of the world that's being described. It's the end of somebody's world, but it's not literally the end of the world. It's apocalyptic language. God grabbing their attention to say it would be as if the moon was going to turn the blood. The stars are going to fall out of the sky. And Joel uses it over and over again. And the world hasn't ended. And we know from Joel it's apocalyptic language where God says, here's what's going to happen. Another major theme in the book of Joel is repentance. Where were you on 9-11? Just give me some ideas. I was in seventh grade. I was in Mr. Brown's geography class. I don't know how that makes some of you feel, but that's how it was. I taught the high school class, and I tried to use September 11th in a different context for a different reason. And they were like, oh, yeah, we read about it in books. And I kind of felt bad. So anyway, so where were you on September 11th? Just throw some stuff at me. Where were you? Somebody said work. Work, school. I'm glad somebody said school. College. They say, they say September 11th, the church, the Sundays that followed, church attendance in the United States rose about 25%. Why do you think that happened? People thought what was coming? The end. Question, why wasn't it sustained? The end didn't come. Things went their way. The book of Joel saying the day of the Lord's coming and take him seriously. One of the major themes in the book of Joel is repentance. We'll just look at one of these. Look at Joel chapter two and notice verse 12. And this goes back to something Chuck mentioned a moment ago. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. When you think about repentance, there are a lot of passages. I hope you start thinking more about Joel 213. It's probably the most powerful verse in the Bible on repentance, or at least one of them. Rend your heart, not your garments, and return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster, meaning he doesn't want to do it. Why does he say rend your heart and not your garments? What is this rending your garments in the Old Testament? Why would they do something like that? It was an outward sign of grief and I'm sorry for what I've done. But over time, people got good at pretending. And if they really want to show that they had repented, you remember what Job did when he was sorrowful over his children at the end of chapter one. You just tear your clothes and cry. And and God says enough of that. Don't tear your clothes. Really tear your heart. How would you define repentance? If somebody pinned you down and said, give me a definition of repentance, what would you say? Okay, leave it behind and go the other way. Change of direction for sure. Change of heart, comprehension, comprehensive. Yeah, it's a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. 
the two people in the Bible who said I've sinned the most are Pharaoh and King Saul, and neither one of them ever repented. Just saying those words doesn't mean anything. I guess our rent your heart and not your garments might be just keep coming down to the front every time I make a big mistake and ask for prayer. And it looks really good. It looks sorrowful. It looks penitent. And I think people should do that when they need prayers. I'm not discouraging that. I'm just saying to you, it means nothing if we don't genuinely repent or even signing off our prayers. And I believe first John one seven that the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us. But signing off our prayers, God, forgive me for my sins. If I intend to just continue to engage in the same old thing, it's rending my heart and not my garments. It's not rending my heart. It's rending my garments. And God's saying, I really want to see genuine change in you. It's a big deal because it's Chuck Mick. We can't fool God. God knows what's in our heart. And the book of Joel is saying, I'll remove the locusts, but only if you're for real about repenting. Yeah, that's right. Psalm 51 creating me a clean heart. And I guess the last thing we'll look at before we go to New Testament usage is restoration. What do people typically say about God in the Old Testament and his attitude toward people? What do people have in their mind about the kind of God that God is in the Old Testament? Miss Joyce? Angry? Vengeful? Unmerciful? But look at these statements in Joel. Look at Joel 2.18. For the Lord became jealous for his land and he has pity on his people. Joel 2 and verse 20, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard to the western sea. The stench and the foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. And then Joel 2, 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. God saying, I'll remove the punishment. You know, sometimes people are engaged in sin and they don't repent because they feel like, look, I've gotten a lot out of this sin. And if I repent now, how am I going to get things straightened out? There's a king in Second Chronicles 25. His name's Amaziah. And he takes some money from a foreign king in order to try to help him win. And a prophet comes and says, you shouldn't do that. You probably need to give that back and straighten things out. And he says, well, what am I going to do? I've already gotten the money. In Second Chronicles 25 and verse nine, he says to Amaziah, the Lord is able to give you much more than these. And I think when we're engaged in sin, we think, well, I've gotten all this pleasure. I've gotten all these great things out of this sin. And what's going to happen if I give this? The Lord is able to give you much more than these. The idea of restoration. He says what the locusts have taken from you. I'll give it back. And then some God would be kind if he just forgave us and said, OK, the, the books are square. You don't owe me. I don't owe you. But God also says, OK, I'm going to wipe the debt clean and then I'm going to help you refurnish the house. And I'm going to straighten out all the stuff that you ruined. And the book of Joel says God is a God of restoration. He not only forgives, but he restores. In fact, we violated the will of God. God says, I'm going to give you back all the years that you lived in sin. It's called eternal life. I'm going to restore it all to you. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you. Okay, perfect time. Ten minutes left. Where do we see the book of Joel used in the New Testament? We're trying to figure out how to apply the book of Joel to the new covenant age. Somebody help us out. Where can I turn in my New Testament and see the book of Joel being quoted? Acts. Acts chapter two. Let's go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. Let's walk me through it. What's going on in Acts chapter two? Besides the stuff that happened after Acts chapter one. I know how some of you think. Okay. Peter's preaching a sermon. Well, before Peter's preaching a sermon, you've got 12 guys standing up there speaking in languages they haven't studied. Correct. People say what about these guys? They're drunk with new wine 
And then Peter gets up to correct this misunderstanding about who these guys are. And he starts preaching. Look at verse 16. Well, we'll start in 14. Peter stood up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all of you who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give rid of my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So whatever Peter says is what Joel was talking about. He says what you're seeing right now is what Joel was talking about. And here it is. In the last days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams, even on male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. They will prophesy. God says he's going to show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapors of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. That didn't happen literally. So why is that there? There's a big change going on. No more, no more Judaism. The new covenant age of Jesus Christ It's as if the sun's falling out of the sky, the moon's turning the blood. All of that's going to happen before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it will come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter says Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled right now. It's the preaching of the gospel in the new covenant age. God's spirit was poured out on all flesh, just like he said it would be. Ezekiel 36, 28 is another promise of that where God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay, so we've got Acts chapter 2. Anywhere else we see the book of Joel quoted in the New Testament? Anywhere else we can think of? I've got two more bullets, so somebody's going to have to tell me something. Okay, here's another one, and this is sort of two. Keep, are we still in Joel? Do people still have their Bibles in Joel? Okay, go to Joel 2, and also look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, and Acts 22, 16. Can somebody read for us Joel 2, 21 quickly, whoever is still there? Joel 2, 21. Fear and joyce, for the Lord has done great things. Oh, that shouldn't be Joel 2, 21. It should be Joel 2, 31 and 32. Sorry. 31 and 32. So that verse 32, everyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does Paul say in Romans 10 and verse 13? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When Ananias stood before Paul, he says, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins, doing what? Calling on the name of the Lord, just like God promised. Now, in the New Testament, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? According to Acts 22 and verse 16, it means to get up, turn away from your sins and be what? Be baptized. Yeah, it doesn't mean just to say Jesus, 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 because the Lord said not everybody who does that is going to be saved. Matthew 7, 21. So that can't be what it means to call on the name of the Lord. It means to make an appeal toward God to call up and say, I want to do what you want me to do. And when we do that, we're saved. And that's what Joel promised in Joel 2, 32. That shouldn't be 21. Sorry about that. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, that's right. So the calling on the name of the Lord in Acts 2, 21 He's showing them what that looks like in Acts 2.38, to repent and be baptized. So what Joel was talking about, God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. We're going to receive that when we repent and we're baptized. And that's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. The last place we see Joel quoted or alluded to is Joel 3.14 through 16. Joel says the great day of the Lord is coming. And in 2 Peter 3 and verse 10, Peter says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens are going to pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works therein will be burned up. 
And Joel talked about a final day of the Lord coming. And that's what Peter saw coming. Joel's day of the Lord was a temporary day of punishment. There are several days of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. But Peter's is the final one. Okay, final thing, four minutes left or three minutes now. Where is Jesus in the book of Joel? Jesus said all of the Bible points to me, Luke 24, 44. So when I read the Old Testament, whether it directly says Jesus Christ is going to do this or not, Jesus says, look for me in the Old Testament if you read it right. And here are just some of the brief ways we see Jesus in Joel. Number one, Jesus takes the punishment we deserve. So the locust plague comes because of the people's sins. But Second Corinthians 5, 21 says God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The punishment that was ours, the plague of sin that should be ours, Jesus bore on our behalf. Number two, repentance was one of Jesus' favorite subjects. It's the first thing he preached, not the Sermon on the Mount. The first thing Jesus preached was Matthew 4:17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or Luke 13, unless you repent, you'll all likewise what? Just like Joel. Jesus came preaching that people have to repent or there'll be severe consequences. Jesus believed in preaching repentance. He also taught that if we repent, he restores, just like Joel. If any man be in Christ, he's a new what? How can he be a new creature? Because God restores him. All things have passed away. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become what? Those concepts in Joel come to greater light in light of what Jesus has done. He makes us friends again with God. That's the ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. And then Jesus says there is a greater day coming. In John 5, he says the father judges no man, but he's committed all judgment to the son. And we're going to be judged based on how we respond to Jesus. And so the day that Joel saw a great day of punishment for Israel Jesus says there's a greater day coming and it all revolves around one thing. How have you responded to me? And so when we read the book of Joel, we see people that have violated God's covenant, but we see God holding out a message of hope and salvation and saying, hey, if you come back, I'll restore and forgive. And I'm doing great things in the future and you want to be a part of it. And Jesus shows up in the New Testament, preaches the same message. And Peter says, this is exactly what Joel was talking about. Every time we see somebody obey the gospel, we should be thinking not in the miraculous way of Acts chapter two with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But even yesterday, when people obey the gospel, we should be thinking, Joel told us so 800 years before Jesus came, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord biblically, they will be saved. God doesn't play favorites. He'll welcome you into the family and he'll restore everything you lost in every moment before you obey the gospel. And whatever's not made up for in this life, he's got an eternity waiting to make sure that it's all restored back to us. Tolkien said, in the end for the Christian, everything sad becomes untrue. And God's going to make up for it in eternity based on what Jesus did for us. Any questions about the book of Joel? we got like 30 seconds left. I didn't think I'd ever finish a Bible class on time. Y'all tell Brittany, okay? All right. Thanks for a good class tonight. I appreciate it.